Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every week, we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now. Hello, I'm David Myers, your host on Then and Now. I'm delighted to welcome today Firyal Bawab and Mariam Aref, undergraduate students at UCLA, who have been part of a year-long Luskin Center research group. Firyal and Mariam worked assiduously with fellow undergraduates Leila Achtoun, Jessica Bruard, and Karina Orfalian on a collection of papers devoted to the topic, U.S. Foreign Policy in the Middle East in the Age of Neoliberalism. They were ably guided by three UCLA PhD candidates, Philip Hoffman, Lily Hindi, and Monica Widman. And Phil is also with us here today. In fact, this is his second time on Then and Now, after his appearance several months ago, to discuss Aluskan Center report that he, Lily, and Monica wrote on U.S. foreign policy and favored minorities in the Middle East. So welcome back to you, Phil. Thank you. It's great to be here. And welcome to you, Firyal and Mariam. Thank you. Thank you. Lovely to be here as well. So all of you have spent more than a year studying U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, exploring longstanding power dynamics that are largely unaffected by changes in administration. In fact, the collection of papers you have produced points to an enduring structure to U.S. foreign policy that has lasted for decades and is animated by a neoliberal outlook and strategy. So today we want to understand what that means and how it comes into play in the Middle East. But first, Firyal and Mariam, tell us a little bit about yourselves. Where are you from? How did you decide to come to UCLA? And what do you study? So I was uh, born in the States before being moved to Jordan at an early age. And then I lived here for the majority of my life in the capital, Amman, uh, went to high school, and then When I applied to colleges, I got accepted into UCLA and I didn't know what to major in at first. I was undecided, but then ultimately I found that international development studies catered to my interest the most. And now I also minor in labor studies as well. And I'm very uh, interested in politics and socioeconomic dynamics, particularly in the Middle East and in Jordan itself and its, its neighbors. And um, I'm, I have a variety of interests ranging from, you know, whether it's NGOs or governance or policy research. Uh, that's all things I enjoy. Great. Thank you. Mariam. Um, yeah. Hi. I'm, so I'm from Cairo. I was born in Cairo. I lived for a large portion of it in Mohandasin, which is um, an older city, I would say. I decided to come to UCLA because I applied and it's essentially also like the best place I got accepted to. And it's a pretty good school um, globally, I would argue. And I study, um, I'm double majoring in economics and public affairs. I came here as an economics major and then I found public affairs and it had a more interdisciplinary approach to what I wanted to study, which is essentially that I'm very interested in inequality and the ways it manifests itself. And I thought like economics and public affairs would like help me understand more about and like know how to solve local and global inequalities. Good. Um, Really helpful. And it sounds like both of you may have um, some sort of career ahead of yourselves uh, that brings your expertise back to uh, the Middle East. Is that, Firyal, is that part of the plan? Yes. Yes, it is. Uh, I have a very flexible you know, idea of my career, but I would definitely want to work on, you know, the international platform or more preferably kind of return to, uh, you know, either Jordan or one of its neighboring countries to, uh, to work in it. Yes. What about you, Mariam? I would also say the same for me, although I don't have like an idea set in stone as of yet. I also like want to return at some point in the future to, Egypt, or also one of the neighboring countries nearby. Good. Um, and so, you know, your your longstanding interests um, that you brought with you and then that were fostered at UCLA, in some sense, uh, crystallized in this research project. 
um, which has been going on for more than a year. How did the project evolve over time um, from the time that you, I mean, when you first got involved and answered the call, what were you expecting to get out of it? And how did your ideas of it change over time? Nariam. So I was attracted to the project because it was talking about soft aid in the Middle East. And I thought that was a very interesting concept. I'm very interested in learning about like how foreign aid affected our perceptions of modernization, for instances, our use of language, our like what music we listen to and like other cultural aspects in the region, mostly because you kind of see these effects happening, um, especially in like late stage neoliberalism, because we that's that's the portion I've lived through personally. Um, and then the group slowly evolved to talk more about like, um, at least what I noticed were economic aspects of neoliberalism, rather than being like a reading group talking about culture and cultural effects, it discussed a lot more about inequalities um, and you, and those ties to foreign aid. So in other words, the shift from forms of soft power, uh, cultural um, enrichment and exchange and uh, support programs to actual policies that uh, prompted or or, or uh, culminated in in widening the gap, um, say between the haves and the have-nots in uh, the respective societies. Yeah. That was the shift that you noticed in your work. Okay, what about you, Fryal? For me, the theme of soft power in the Middle East was a very intriguing theme to me that is important to me, just because. Growing up, uh, U.S. foreign policy is actually a, a big topic amongst whether it's family members or friends, just because, you know, it's naturally a pretty political ki- climate in, in, the, in the household that I grew up in. And so uh, obviously, you know, when you're talking amongst your family and that in much younger without as much knowledge, uh, the conversations aren't as nuanced, but there's always these like common themes. And I think what attracted me to this project was being able to to increase my knowledge and, and sharpen my understanding and nuance of of how soft power uh, truly operated in, in the Middle East and, and like its history and and all the extensive details, really. So it was right up my alley. What would you include under soft power? So we mentioned just a minute ago, sort of cultural programs, cultural exchange. That's just one piece of the larger uh, complex of soft power. What else? What else is involved? Oh, um, multiple aspects that I've witnessed while growing up personally is its influence on government policies and its uh, and their their budget uh, uh, placements and and the education system. Mariam's paper wonderfully touches on the education system in Egypt and for me in Jordan. I noticed that the the economic divides between public and private schools and uh, the material that they that each one individually propagates or might not propagate uh, is directly influenced by by international aid and support from from Western countries and and which which is connected and dates back from a history of colonialism. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's definitely one aspect. In addition to you know um, uh, aid and right. and uh, austerity programs. Right, Phil. Any thoughts on uh, on sort of this notion of soft power uh, uh, as we begin our exploration of its effects? Yes, I think it is a very fluid concept. And what we had in mind when we started this initiative and really the end of 2019, so it's been going on for quite a while, was to attract a core um, talented, hardworking group of undergraduate and graduate students. And I think we succeeded very well with that. We have and a really excellent group of students who have been in it through the long haul throughout 2020, which has obviously been a challenging year. Um, and with that, we were able to really, I think, let the group um, feel out what this concept of soft power meant. Because when you draw the boundaries around it, what it really means is all types of non-military aid. Um, and when when you look at a category that huge, you can take it in many different directions. Um, you can take it as Mariam has, um, it with really like um, a numbers crunching hard economic look at the um, broader economic dynamics and how they've manifested in Egypt. You can look at it as some of the other volume authors have. Um, uh, Leila Ashtun, for example, decided to look at this concept of soft power through the lens of education, through the lens of a specific approach to education. So what I've been really impressed by um, throughout this past year and a half is 
how much um, the group has really made this topic their own and delved into specific case studies that relate to their own passions, um, all, all under the umbrella of this broader theme. Great. Um, in fact, uh, the collection uh, is entitled U.S. Foreign Policy in the Middle East, Changes in the Neoliberal Age. And as Phil mentioned, it features papers by uh, uh, a, a distinguished array of undergraduate students, um, including Mariam uh, Leila Khtun writing on uh, education in Morocco, Jessica Bruard writing on domestic surveillance policy after 9-11, and Karina Orfalian writing on um, U.S. government expertise or putative expertise on Iran. So a diverse array uh, of papers, all of which sort of get at this um, notion of U.S. foreign policy, especially uh, through non-military means um, in the Middle East. Um, Furial, what was your role in the project? My role was um, contributing and writing uh, some of the introduction in addition to uh, ed editing and revising uh, one of the papers from my distinguished undergrad uh, fellow mates. And uh, yeah, and then also going over the introduction with Phil and revising and re-editing that as well and, and making it into the, the cohesive introduction it is by uh, connecting paragraphs. And that was a heavy lift because you had the task of explaining to the readers what neoliberalism was, the neoliberalism that stands in uh, the title of, uh, of the paper. So maybe we'll now call upon you to explain what do we mean when we refer to neoliberalism? Yeah, for sure. In this paper, we sort of define neoliberalism as the privatization of industries and the unconstrained opening of markets, which emphasizes the minimizing of, of government interference and uh, the way that uh, government interference is minimized uh, in neoliberalism is that, uh, you know, welfare budgets are cut and there's an emphasis on pro-market policies uh, in order to to increase the government's um, tax revenues um, on paper, yeah. So how is this relevant to the topic of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East? What, what, what is the connection between neoliberalism and U.S. foreign policy? Right. The big connection here is that uh, U.S. foreign policy has been a huge player in pushing neoliberalism onto the Middle East, which... Uh, if you look back in history, a lot of movements in the in the region and populations championed a lot more socialist policies. So the reason why we see the the region today in such a completely different place with a lot of neoliberal policies is because U.S. aid programs have throughout the decades encouraged cutting expenditure, removing social protection, and has has. Uh, has incentivized and economically pressured, pressured Middle Eastern countries to uh, to focus on, uh, you know, unrestraining the market. So uh, uh, factors, uh, international organizations that that are a part of this are the World Bank and IMF, who you know are labeled international organizations, but are largely propelled by by U.S. influence and in, in foreign uh, foreign policy. So the idea is that the United States, along with its international financial partners, the World Bank and the IMF, offer aid to countries around the world, but in a conditional sense. That is to say, we will give you aid if you undertake or adopt certain policies, which include austerity budgets, um, privatization of, uh, of functions that used to be uh, government functions. Um, and also bring with, uh, also part of the condition is that there be some measure of often political stability, particularly of other parts of uh, the United States foreign government might, uh, the United States government might label as authoritarian or uh, as deniers of, of human rights. So it seems as if, in a certain sense, U.S. foreign policy or the praxis of U.S. foreign policy can, in fact, is at loggerheads with its own, you know, with its own articulated principles. The United States State Department ha issues a human rights uh, report. Um, it speaks the language of human rights. 
And yet you're suggesting that a foundation of U.S. foreign policy is the promulgation of policies that um, may have the exact opposite effect of the promotion of human rights. If we cut right to the chase. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, that sounds uh, that sounds exactly right. All right, Phil, we'll call on you to step in and um, add nuance to um, my rather unrefined question. What 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 can we say about these competing vectors in in U.S. foreign policy um, between the articulated aim of promoting human rights and the promotion of neoliberalism, which can have um, countervailing countervailing effects? Well, I think the contradiction that you highlight is a very real one, um, and I think it's. Important to note, um, like you said, the roots of these human rights discourses that really extend beyond sort of the rhetorical level of the discourse and have permeated so many levels of American bureaucracy. And these discourses and these ideas in turn fund millions, if not billions of dollars per year um, in uh, initiatives across the world focused on um, uh, preserving human rights, freedom of the press, um, uh, countering authoritarian moves. But at the same time, I think it's important to note the macroeconomic policies that America has played a role in and the security assistance that goes along with that, that have supported many autocratic regimes around the world and specifically um, in the region that we're talking about right now. So I don't think it's appropriate to either talk on the one hand about um, a grand conscious self-aware conspiracy um, on the part of the of the U.S. to propagate this kind of um, regime of aust- of austerity to securitization. On the other hand, I don't think it's it's um, appropriate as a lot of people in the in the D.C. foreign policy circuit to to sort of tear some tear one's hair out and and bemoan the fact that despite all of these human rights priorities and programming, um, many of the metrics in a lot of regions of the world, including in the Middle East, still remain so dismal. Of course. Um, America's, um, these wider priorities that, as Ferriel mentioned, have been pursued not just by the official institutions of American aid, by the State Department, by USAID, but by larger um, global financial institutions like the World Bank and the IMF have prioritized balanced budgets and austerity measures um, over social institutions that, as Miriam will discuss, have could play a large role in reducing inequality and ensuring larger social tensions across the region. So um, I think our, our goal has been to approach this project with that kind of nuance, but I, as you said, it's important to really recognize this contradiction that lies at the heart of a lot of American foreign policy in the region. And um, is support for this neoliberal approach uh, to uh, foreign aid and support nonpartisan, or is it um, the product of one or another uh, of the perspectives held by Democrats and Republicans? That is to say, is it is it a matter of partisan politics? Is it Republicans who support sort of this neoliberal part or Democrats? Or does this really transcend political difference? Uh, we can see clearly from history that this certainly transcends political difference. The parties are uh, kind of a nice way to give this 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 idea that you know there's there's the guys that support you and the guys that may not support you depending on your ideology, uh, but ultimately both of their foreign po- policies are the same. So you can definitely not tell it's not a matter of individual parties, but just like an overarching, almost American institutional policy uh, over the, the Middle East. What what lies behind it? What what do you think? Um... You know, is the motive for this neoliberalism? Is it simply to produce more effective and efficient governments abroad to be recipients of American aid? Is it sort of the efficiency principle? Um, is it uh, some um, you know tool of exploitation or manipulation by the United States of uh, regimes in the Middle East? What what do you sense is behind uh, the promotion of neoliberalism? Is it sort of a, a natural extension of American capitalism? How do you see it? Different periods of history have brought on different motives for the U.S. to remain involved in the, the Middle East. It predominantly started with the Cold War, obviously, uh, where they were just uh, fighting and vying in, in proxy wars with Russia uh, for states in the Middle East. 
to become either communist or capitalistic. There was no in between. And so, you know, a lot of these these uh, proxy wars uh, resulted in, in the U.S. entrenching itself into uh, a lot of the Middle Eastern countries. And then when the Cold War passed, you know, uh, there, there were also other factors, obviously, for instance, uh, the Middle East's wealth of oil is a huge factor that plays into U.S. foreign policy, even though uh, one might argue, might argue that the U.S. has shifted to some other oil sources, like in South America, they remain in, uh, uh, they still have a lot of trade with uh, Saudi Arabia, and uh, they also have a lot of military arms deals, which brings in a huge amount of of, proxy, of profit and revenue that uh, cannot be overemphasized, honestly. And so I think the U.S. profits off of uh, these factors, in addition to uh, garnering allies in the Middle East to reign certain influence and uh, to to have these allies, um, this requires stability uh, in order to have a sort of control even on these allies because a lot of these uh, alliances uh, are not an equal playing field, especially with the smaller countries. There's a power imbalance, which the U.S. tries to garner superiority of this uh, of this power balance with with its aid. Got it. Phil. Yes, I think Firiel really mentions um, an important point about the enduring power of these types of alliances. The American-Saudi alliance has really existed in 19, since the 1930s. Um, America's had large alliances um, with Jordan ever since it was a mandate territory as well. Um, I think it's also important to note that these types of sh- this shift towards a more neoliberal approach, I think, is paralleled shifts in an American domestic understanding about what the state should do in public life. Um, USAID programs in the 1950s and 60s were not only cognizant of the danger of international communism from the point of view of the people propagating them, but were also coming from the post-New Deal great society ethos in which uh, the government taking a higher level of involvement in, in, in a lot of different social development programs that was a more accepted form of um humanitarian aid. So, so many development programs in the region focused on land reform, focused on central infrastructure projects, um, focused on improving education and healthcare systems on a wide public facing scale throughout the 1950s and 60s. And obviously not just domestically, but importantly, domestically in the U.S., that understanding started to change throughout the 1970s and 80s. And with um, the election of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, you have this new understanding of the state's redu- of the state's ideal reduced role that really, as Ferial mentioned, permeated the Democratic-Republican divide in America and became a cornerstone of America's regional policy all of a sudden. Um, and a lot of programs moving from the 80s onward, market-based solutions really became the name of the game when addressing a lot of these problems. So both domestically and then exported internationally through aid programs, ironically enough, which rather than being sort of uh, outright grants without conditions, um, were often tied to very onerous conditions uh, for economic reform. And that, I think, brings us uh, squarely to Egypt, which is one of the most interesting case studies um, in this exploration of U.S. uh, foreign policy and neoliberalism in the Middle East. um, you um, explored uh, Egypt in your chapter. Um, can you tell us what this actually looked like on the ground? Um, we've been talking about a kind of abstract principle, but you really afford us the opportunity of now drilling down and looking at a case study. So what did this provision of U.S. foreign policy look like in Egypt um, at a critical point in Egyptian history? And how did it manifest neoliberalism? So neoliberalism in Egypt is... Well, it can be seen through the effects it had on privatization and underprivileged, underprivileged classes. It um, So historically, it started with Anwar al-Sadat in the 1970s, particularly 1974, who introduced the Infiteh um, and has since um, developed every corner of Egypt we see today. During this Infiteh, inflation increased, but pay particularly for those who work in the public sector, because with neoliberalism, you really don't want to support the public sector and the welfare system. Um, so pay for people who work in the public sector de- 
did not increase despite widespread inflation. And we saw some of the first responses to this neoliberal dilemma in 1977, where there were riots in which 40 people died and like police stations were destroyed after some subsidies were removed. And the removal of subsidies was in itself a move encouraged by international organizations at the time. So between 1974 and 1981, which is the entirety of Sadat's rule, essentially, loans from international organizations doubled, tripled, and even up to 20 times, went up to 20 times the original amount um, in support of Sadat's neoliberal policies. And we also saw a similar situation happening under Mubarak, not necessarily with loans um, moving up to 20 times the original amount, because I feel like that would be difficult considering the amount they had like eventually reached. But under Mubarak, Mubarak, the loans also grew. And by 2006, a newspaper published that 20% of the population was receiving 80% of the wealth. And that was a very like on the ground statistic that we see, we moved from Gamera Abdel Nasser's kind of um, understanding of a socialist Egypt to one in which a quarter of the population essentially owns the land. Um, and it is still was still since the beginning, this neoliberal agenda was still being pushed by international organizations up until the end of Mubarak's rule in 2011. Mm. Right. So this is a very interesting uh, shift that you're tracing from Nasser's um, sort of Egyptian socialism um, to Sadat, who introduced this notion of the infitah, um, which, as I understand it, meant a new openness to private investment, um, which coincided, it should be said, with the pivot in Egypt away from a close alliance with the Soviet Union to the United States. Um, and those forces thus converged, that commitment to private investment, privatization, and sort of American-style um, economic and political principles, for that matter. They all converge in Sadat. Um, and tell us a little bit more about that seven-year period. What what actually took place on the ground? And, you know, from Sadat's perspective, was Infitah a success um, in his eyes? Um, I'm not sure about his eyes in particular, but the Infitah was in general seen as a success. Egypt's economy did grow. The GDP did like massively grow. G um, GNI gross national income also massively grew. Educational access increased. Um, there were a lot of good numbers to look at um, if you were looking for good numbers. Um, and however, a lot of the labor market growth was in managerial positions, which are like the middlemen. So it's not necessarily productive economy kind of growth along with that those who own global businesses leading officials and formal and then formal hidden market began growing and this created wealth for certain portions of the population and while this did create massive amounts of wealth it was mostly for certain portions of the population so if you were looking particularly i think in the 70s and 80s what you would consider as growth would be gdp so if you were only looking at gdp you would necessarily say yeah this is this is a good policy and do we know that the gap between rich and poor grew during this period? That your statistic of 25% of the country owning 75% or 80% um, seems at, at one with what we know of sort of the neoliberal world of the late 20th, early 21st century. But was that a very significant shift from earlier periods um, in terms of the distribution of wealth? Um, that's a little more difficult because under Nasser, there weren't many statistics calculated because it was still under, Egypt was still under, um, or like reviving itself from colonial influence. So there's not as much statistic, um, statistical analysis done on that period. However, it is also interesting to note that under Nasser, most people, um, regained some access or let me restate that. Under Nasser's regime, there was a very high influence on everyone having equal access to housing and equal access to education and all that. So while he also emphasized access, he also emphasized access in the form of welfare, in the form of like funding education and funding housing. Meanwhile, under Sadet, this increased focus on funding education did not really happen. Um, and under Mubarak, the same thing. While 
educational funding did not necessarily decrease substantial amounts as a percentage of the economy. When you consider that a lot more people were receiving education, it's kind of interesting to see, okay, but it's like 5% of the economy. So one of the things you talk about in your um, in your chapter is education, the realm of education. So tell us more specifically what happens. There's new investment in education, but it doesn't end up equalizing access to high-quality education for Egyptian children. Why is that? Um, yeah, so in education, we kind of see the effects of neoliberalism and the fact that it remains to be underfunded. Um, teachers, especially public school teachers, because as we noted before, um, the welfare sector, including like public schools, etc., were encouraged to be underfunded because neoliberalism pushes for the privatization of the regime. Um, so because of this, teachers and schools had to result to other me- methods than the typical school day in order to maintain some sort of living wage. So oftentimes teachers would make their students pay for after school classes. Um, schools would often not even count for attendance. So I, in one of the papers I read for for this paper, someone had noted that they went to a school in order to like interview teachers and there was no one in the school. Um, and it was just a regular school day. And then under Mubarak's rule, classrooms also like housed up to 50 children. Some schools would host two to three shifts a day. And by the 2000s, up to 50% of students were receiving private tutoring at the primary level. That's not even like the like high school. Um, so primary is essentially your elementary schooling. Um, so 50% of students at the primary level were receiving tutoring. Outside of the public school system. Yeah pointing to the inadequacy of the public school system and some version of privatization of education. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the gap essentially had no choice but to be filled by the private sector because public school teachers and schools in general were not funded well enough and inflation was rising along with like the emphasis on decreasing the value of the pound and all that. So there was no choice. (laughs) So to an outside observer, say an official at the World Bank, um, she or he could look at certain numbers of uh, in economic indicators in Egypt and say things are going very well. And yet within the country, um, as a result of some of the um, more negative effects of neoliberalism, like income inequality and privatization, the picture looks very different. You have this kind of stark contrast, uh, disjuncture between the external and the internal perspective. And I'm just wondering, what about the effects of neoliberalism on the political sphere? What, what happens to you know, the promotion of democracy, which is often a declared goal of uh, the United States um, and would seem to be consonant with neoliberalism? It contains the word liberalism in it, as it were. Is that what happened or not? I would say that when it comes to dem- democratic ideals, neoliberalism may not be the best to promote them simply because the case with Egypt is what happened under Mubarak's regime is that um, because a certain amount of people had access to most of the wealth, it kind of leaves these people to essentially do as they wish. Um, And in addition to this, because they controlled most of the wealth and and it was a certain class of like the middlemen, as we we said before, like the military, etc., um, safety and other things were only accessible to a certain portion, certain portion of the population, and I think it's really easy to see that neoliberalism may not be the best for a democracy when we consider that the Mubarak's rule lasted for three decades before he had to be outed by a revolution. So, and how privatized did Egyptian society become during that period? Well, that can like be seen in several ways. You can see privatization access to safety, um, which is that essentially if you, there was another paper that I read for this um, paper, discusses that she was, the person who was writing it, Salwa Smail, was interviewing people. And one of the people she interviewed was talking about how um, the the woman, she was a working class woman. She talked about how if she was ever like caught um, at, for like random questioning, she would call her employer because she assumed her employer would have more money and thus more access to people in whatever questioning facility this is and thus could get her out. Um, and another tactic they used would be to say, like, oh, this person has a clean appearance um, in Arabic, which means that essentially, like, oh, they look like they come from a wealthier family. So, like, let's not let's not wrongly stop and question them. 
Um, and then another like very clear thing to see is the privatization of public space in the, in the form of like privatization of clubs. Um, housing in general became very privatized. We can see that through the rise of gated communities, which are still a very popular thing in Egypt to this day, especially as they house the like desert cities. Most of the desert cities housed as a private um, gated community. What what's a desert city? I'm not sure I know what that is. Um, so since Egypt's mostly desert, for the most part of its history, we used to live in settlements on the Nile. So Zemelik, etc. It's like mostly places near the Nile. But since also since the rule, we've been trying to expand into the desert. So a lot of a large portion of the desert is currently not the desert in general, but like a large portion of the hab- habitable desert has been taken up by private developers creating gated communities. And did this neoliberal foreign policy of the United States, which conditioned aid on all sorts of draconian structural changes that recipients were required to make, um, what did it do to the image of the United States in Egypt? What, what, what do Egyptians who have... What did Egyptians um, who experienced the effects of neoliberalism think about the United States or did they not make the connection? Um, I don't focus on this deeply in my paper, so I don't want to say anything that I haven't very well researched. However, you can see some of the effects of looking at the United States kind of like, um, and I think I discussed the movie um, Saidi Gamal Amrikeya, which is essentially talking about this one person who goes to the American University and like, it shows a lot of the stereotypes held about the American University in Cairo, which is simply because it's the American University in Cairo um, as kind of like um, liberal, like the home of a liberal ideology, not leftist, but like necessarily liberal liberal ideology. Mm. And where is, what's the state of play today in terms of U.S. foreign aid and neoliberalism? How, how, how has it affected Egyptian society today? So that's after, after Mubarak, after Morsi in the CC era. Where are we at today? Um, I would say that like, despite economic growth that has been occurring from these policies, we still we still adapt to some extent some neoliberal policies um, and neoliberalism in general, as Egypt has experienced it, has heavily deteriorated class relations. I think a lot of energy will need to be expanded in order to fix what has been going on in the past, what is it by now, six decades? Um, um, perhaps, I'm not sure if we're ever going to see a removal of neoliberal policies in our lifetimes, or at least fixing what has been destroyed. So I think that's where we're currently at. Maybe we'll bring Firyal back in and ask, um, although you didn't write on it, you certainly know uh, Jordanian society and politics well. I'm just wondering um, if neoliberalism has also uh, been a pronounced force in Jordan, especially through the... um, instrument of American foreign policy and foreign policy aid. Neoliberalism in Jordan is one of its guiding policies and principles in the way uh, the government has governed, really. Uh, the, The country's political climate is known for having intermittent bread riots throughout the decades. Um, because of neoliberal policies, every time a new austerity program is introduced, uh, what people care about, especially the most uh, vulnerable and the poorest populations care about, is the price of bread. And when austerity programs are introduced, bread prices go up. And uh, this is when people usually riot. And this is common. This happens in uh, Jordan. This has happened in Lebanon. This has happened in Egypt. Um, and so, as you can see, uh, the reason why the US is adamant on promoting stability when introducing neoliberalism is because the policies provoke instability. Uh, It makes people angry, especially the populations that don't have any social protection. And so uh, sometimes, uh, a lot of the time, people will directly blame the government, but there is also a lot of anti-Western sentiment and anti-US sentiment uh, amongst 
uh, the middle class and, and the lower class. And uh, yes, the, the upper class as well, but uh, but it's it's more strongly felt amongst populations that are hit the hardest, even though ironically, as we know, Jordan, you know, the, the, the state itself is the U.S.'s closest allies, but there is there is social resentment. Yeah, it exacerbates social tensions within Jordanian society. As long as we have you, um, is there any way you can shed light for us on the palace intrigue of the last few weeks in Jordan? What happened is that, uh, you know, obviously, so what neoliberalism brings, as you said, is class tension. Yeah. And I think that is a factor that played into the scandal in which uh, one of uh, Prince... uh, Prince Hamza was accused of of uh, kind of collecting support for a coup d'etat, right? Uh, there was no violent attempt. Rather, he was go, going around visiting the tribes, talking to working cl- class people and, and rural people. And uh, yeah, just the, the, the uh, shad. Uh, as we call them, and so the the monarchy felt a little threatened by the fact that he was kind of cultivating a lot of alliances and and just using very uh, kind of a welfare language, right? So support uh, the poor, support farmers, support uh, tribes, because as we said, what neoliberal policy has done for for decades in Jordan has left all those populations out. Well, it, it primarily supports the private sector, supports the managerial sector, supports, you know, the the urban middle class and an upper middle class. And so I think there was a, cul- a culmination and in, intention in this in this aspect. And uh, so so the the Prince Hamza was was detained there. Uh, I don't know if you guys know this. I'll be sure to get, provide context. Prince Hamza was supposed to was supposed to be the next king, but uh, his brother was kind of uh, kind of took his place. It was supposed to be temporary until he became of age. But you know he, <laughs> you know he sat in that kind. He was like, I don't think I'm gonna give it back. So he just kind of rewrote a little bit of the, the 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 lineage, and and now his son is gonna take after him. And and yeah, it, like that's that's a part of the the royal family history. So. But at the same time, you would suggest part of the history of the legacy of neoliberalism in Jordanian uh, history. For sure, because this this royal tension, this was decades ago. You know, you, you want to ask yourself, why is this suddenly coming up now? It's because the 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 the, the middle class, the, the farmers, rural people, they they feel like they're not seen. They're not seen by the government. They are not seen by the royal family who are increasingly investing in the capital Amman, which is mostly urban and specifically Western Amman, like not even the whole capital. There's like an overinvestment in, in kind of like urbanizing, gentrifying, kind of making the, the city glossier while for the longest time, just kind of very much uh, underfunding other parts of, of the country. So maybe as we move towards conclusion, I can ask you a really big question for which you may have um, some answers drawn from your studies involved in this report and just your uh, um, general uh, experience in your respective home countries. But um, what is a credible and desirable alternative to neoliberalism as an instrument of U.S. foreign policy? What would be a better way? Uh, well, ideally, I would love to have a welfare state. Uh, I'm a big fan of that, but I think a good move from that is kind of to uh, kind of stop overinvesting in the private sector and kind of shift our move to supporting uh, farmers, for supporting rural areas. Uh, I'm a big fan of of self-sufficient villages i think in towns i think that's on the rise especially as we as the world continues to grow and we realize that you can't keep like there's a cap to growth and i think what we need to focus on is being more self-sustaining and self-sufficient so i would like for jordan i believe there should be an investment in 
because uh, the region, the the state is uh, divided into a lot of individual towns and villages. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think we should invest in in kind of cultivating those towns and villages, making them more self sufficient and uh, and and uh, tending to the urban poor as well. I feel like there's a lot of uh, housing insecurity amongst the urban poor and and particularly unemployment amongst them. So I feel like the uh, government should shift its focus to that. Mm -hmm. So in that ideal welfare state of yours, would there or would there not be U.S. foreign aid? For Jordan, I I hate to say this, but U.S. foreign aid is is an integral part of our economy. It's a scary big percentage of it. Uh, What I would just like is if that U.S. aid didn't come with, you know, the forced condition of of controlling where that budget goes and kind of letting the the government put it into long term investments for uh, for the populations, Uh, because we have seen in the past decade, you know, millions, if not billions of money coming through to us through U.S. aid. And we don't know where that money goes. It's just poof because we we there are not conditions have not improved in, in the public education has not improved for Eastern Amman. Where did that money go? Just uh, mm-hmm. pumping it into the private sector. So I think that needs to stop. I think uh, budget expenditure needs to stop being pumped into the private sector and it needs to start being pumped into other other areas of the country. Public sector. Yeah. yeah. What about in Egypt, uh, Mariam? Um, can you think of a better alternative to uh, sort of American-driven neoliberalism? I think there must be a lot of better alternatives um, to American-driven foreign aid um, and neoliberalism. Um, personally, I would argue that if aid is necessary, then it should be untied and it should if it if it is going to be tied, then it should be tied to educational and healthcare facilities. Um, and then if because the way it's managed, right? Like as Fidel said, we have a lot of money being invested into our economies and it just kind of disappears. And um I like found a statistic earlier that the US within Mubarak's rule had um appropriated $87 million worth of educational assistance to Egypt. And at that point there were 78 million individuals in the country. So that's $1 million per person for just their educational assistance. And I don't think that was really there. Um, So I think instead of focusing on like, hey, we should be privatizing, then maybe the US should just say, okay, we are giving you this money for education or for healthcare, if this aid is indeed necessary. and then let the government decide from there where that aid should go into education, where that aid should go into healthcare, because otherwise it's kind of tying it to U.S. ideologies, and it is not necessarily the best thing for a people to know, like that their government is being tied to a foreign ideology, especially the U.S. Considering it's like invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan and all that, where it's not necessarily always seen as the benevolent provider, to say the least. And Phil will give you a crack as a final uh, thought uh, on this question. Um, You know, you're a a student of Middle Eastern history. Um, You have uh, worked in the NGO world uh, in the Middle East as well. Um, I'm curious about your your take on alternatives to this model of neoliberalism that seems to be such an important fixture of American foreign policy and and aid. I I think the main bone I had to pick with the entire NGO system, and I know this is a very broad point to make, um, from my time there, was the idea of buy-in and consult, um, of beneficiary buy-in. Now, obviously, throughout so many different projects, there's always a point, there's always a point in which um, during a very regimented project planning process, people consult with different beneficiaries on their opinions of where the aid is going to go and how they see that aid. But of course, if your donor is a Western government and they're holding the purse strings, the contours of the project can't change all that much. So what you're essentially saying is um, 
if foreign aid is structured this way, you're constructing a state apparatus that by its design isn't answerable to its constituents. And I would agree with all of what Maryam and Ferial were saying was renegotiating this relationship between the state and its constituents on a broader level, um, both by addressing some of the harm that the past few decades of austerity have done, and also recentering um, where these types of decisions get made so that local buy-in is respected. Um, and as I said before, if Reagan and Thatcher were sort of the, the signposts of the arrival of this neoliberalism, of, of these neo, neo of these neoliberal ideas a few years ago, then you look at the events of even the past year or two, sort of the the campaigns of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and the kind of momentum and support they've gotten in the American context for having a real conversation about um, renegotiating the role of the state in so many aspects of public life. So I don't think that this debate is relegated to the American context or the regional context. I think this is a global conversation that's entering a new phase. Well said. Um, and on that note, I think um, uh, we have a last run out of time, and I want to take this opportunity to express my deep thanks to Mariam and Firyal for your really wonderful work on the report uh, that will be released in uh, the next few weeks, um, and uh, for your um, really um, wise insights uh, into the phenomenon of neoliberalism on this podcast today. And thanks, of course, to Phil Hoffman, both for today, uh, as well as for his expert guidance of this wonderful team of undergraduate researchers uh, for uh, the report on neoliberalism in U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. Um, really, it's been an illuminating time with you. Thank you for being with us. And a special thanks, of course, to our executive producer, Maya Ferdman. Until next time, wishing you a pleasant and safe day. Thank you for joining us this week on Then and Now. Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at Luskin History. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.